You're listening to the Covenant Original Series, I Believe. We affirm that there is one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is one in essence and three in person. What's up, Covenant Church? How are we doing this morning? Good? Well, 2,000 years ago, something extraordinary happened. The God of this universe, in the person of Jesus Christ, came down to earth and he started explaining. And as Jesus lived, he taught, he explained, both through the things that he taught and through the life that he lived, he taught us about God. He taught us how we can be in a right relationship with God. He taught us who God is and what God is up to in the world. And Jesus answered questions for us. He answered questions that we have thought about as human beings for a long, long time. And for those people who were skeptical about the things that Jesus was saying, and probably even more skeptical about whether or not he was truly God, Jesus proved himself. He performed miracles witnessed by thousands. His life was the fulfillment of prophecy, hundreds of prophecies made thousands of years beforehand. Jesus' life was the unique fulfillment of those. And then to top it all off, Jesus Christ chose to go to a cross to be crucified and die. And then three days later, three days later, he rose from the dead, proving once and for all that his claims about being God were in fact true. All of these things, as Pastor Seth taught us last, last month in our Aftermath series, all of these things are well attested by reliable witnesses shortly after those events. So we have a trustworthy statement that Jesus is God. And as Jesus begins to explain it becomes pretty important and incumbent upon us to listen to what he has to say. Because I don't know about you, but I want to know God. I wanna know who he is. And it's something that we don't think about that often, but but here here is something important. Our concept, our overall understanding of who God is, it is vitally important to our life. It's vitally important to how we worship. You know, Scripture tells us that we're meant to worship in spirit and in truth. I don't want to worship in spirit and a lie. I don't want to have a misunderstanding about who it is that I'm worshiping. But I think we take that for granted sometimes. The fact that our view of God determines how we worship. It determines how we treat one another. It determines the type of purpose and the way that we live our lives. But here's here's the tough thing, okay, admittedly. As Jesus begins to talk about God and as he explains, we find out pretty clearly that some of the things that he talks about are pretty tough to understand. The Jewish people aren't surprised by this because what we read in Isaiah chapter 55 is a verse that that they have known for a long time. And this is something that you guys have probably heard before where God comes along and he says through the prophet Isaiah that my thoughts are nothing like your thoughts and my ways are far beyond anything that you can imagine. And with a statement like that, it's not necessarily amazing that there's things about God that we have trouble comprehending. You know, if you think about it, 
God is spirit. I'm flesh. Of course I'm going to have trouble comprehending. God is all-powerful. He's omnipotent. I can do like 35 push-ups on a good day. Okay, we're very different, us and God. And so my understanding, my understanding of, of, of God, it's, it's pretty amazing that I can have one when you think about it. This all-powerful, omnipotent, outside of time and space creator, limitless God, Jesus helps us to begin to understand who he is. Now, comprehending God is, is difficult. When I was in fifth grade, I was good at math. Do we have anybody who is good at math in here? Man, in fifth grade, I was good at math. I had the times tables down. Long division, short division. I didn't know the difference, but I could do all of it. Flashcard battles. I don't know if you guys had these, but flashcard battles in our classrooms. I was the master at that. And in my hubris, my arrogance, one day I decided, since I understand math, that I'm going to open up my older sister's pre-calculus textbook. And there, in the pages of that textbook, for the very first time in my life, I encountered clear, indisputable evidence that evil exists in the world. (laughs) Numbers and letters mixed together in some sort of witch's brew of just devilry. I shut that book. I have never spoken of it again until this day. I never could comprehend how that worked. And and in that story, that that opening up that math book, it didn't illustrate to me, I didn't learn anything about math that day. What I learned was that I can't comprehend math like I think I can. And sometimes that's how I feel when I study uh, uh, Jesus and God. I come away not necessarily knowing something new, but rather realizing that, man, I worship a God that is so much bigger, so much greater, and in some ways and in many ways incomprehensible to me. But the trouble is that my concept of God matters, and I want to know God, even if he's tough to understand sometimes. And so today's sermon, we're going to tackle something that might be one of the more difficult aspects of who God is, which is the Trinity. Scripture tells us that God is triune. There are three persons to the Godhead. And so we're gonna do our very best to engage our minds. Scripture says that we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so today we're gonna love God with our minds. I'm gonna ask you to engage. I'm gonna ask you to get out your notebooks. You're gonna have to focus. This is gonna be sort of a seminary level, high-level theological talk, okay? Are you guys with me? Are we engaged? Are we ready for this? All right, let's do it. So if you're taking notes today, and we do, we worship in spirit and truth, we're gonna take these notes, we're gonna talk about them in our sea life groups. Here's what I want you to write down first. I believe that there is one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, are each fully and equally God. And we're gonna leave that on screen for a few minutes so that you can write that down. But I want you to understand with persons, we're not talking about human persons. God doesn't exist as human persons. We're talking about centers of consciousness or personalities. They think, they act, they feel. It's not an impersonal force that we're talking about. So those three persons, I believe there is one God 
who eternally exists as three distinct persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who are each fully and equally God. Augustine of Hippo, this fourth century church father, brilliant man, mind-blowingly brilliant, okay? This guy wrote stuff that we are still studying in seminaries 1,500 years later. I mean, just a brilliant church father. He spent 19 years of his life studying this one topic, the Trinity. 19 years he dedicated. And he, is, he wrote a book about it. And, and about the Trinity, he's alleged to have said this. He says, if you deny the Trinity, to deny the Trinity is to lose your soul. But to try to comprehend the Trinity is to lose your mind. <laughs> And I admit I have felt that way when I'm thinking about how is it possible that God can be one and three? So we're gonna tackle some of this today. We're gonna go through it. Hopefully no one loses their minds, all right? But we're gonna go at it one at a time, one piece at a time. And the first one that we're gonna tackle is this part. There is one God. I believe that scripture teaches us that there is one God, only one God. Now you might wanna say, okay, Pastor David, I know that there are multiple gods. There's Allah, there's... Hindu gods, there's people that believe other things about this. All right, we'll tackle that in just a minute. But for now, here's what scripture says. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter six. In verse four, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is, let's try it again. We gotta emphasize that one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. James, in the New Testament, brother of Jesus, chapter two, verse 19, he says that you believe that there is one God and you do well. So it's clear, very clear, there's one God. If you believe in one God, you do well. The Lord your God is one. So what do we do with these other ideologies, these other perspectives on this? I think that Jesus teaches us a lot about it. In John chapter 17, Jesus talks about the only true God. He uses that phrasing, the only true God. Now, me and my four-year-old Cohen, we, we work on opposites a lot. And so I know he can get this, so I know you can get it, okay? What is the opposite of true? False. So when Jesus says that there is only one true God, what he's implying is that out there, there are also false gods. In the Old Testament, we see that. The nation of Israel is surrounded by these other nations, God commands the nation of Israel as they take over the promised land to kick all these other people out, get rid of them, do not allow them because these other nations worship false gods. And God knows, and it's proven to be true, that if Israel doesn't kick these people out, then eventually Israel's gonna start worshiping these false gods. And so in the Old Testament, you see gods like Baal or Asherah or Ashtaroth, Bel, Chemosh, Molech, Dagon, you see these different gods that people are worshiping. And they worship them in different ways. They set up statues, they sacrifice children, they sacrifice animals. They, there's all kinds of different worship that happens there. Now, um, in the New Testament, there's gods. The Apostle Paul walking around Athens, he's heartbroken because as he looks around, he sees idol after idol after idol after idol. And he sees these idols that people are setting up and worshiping to false gods. And today we worship multiple gods around the globe. We already mentioned Hinduism has, has literally an infinite number of gods. 
The Muslims worship Allah. People worship Mother Earth or ancestral spirits. There's all sorts of different viewpoints on this. And so what are we supposed to do with that? Because on one hand, God is saying there's one God. And on the other hand, God is also saying there's multiple gods. Here's what, here's what I believe. And here's what I think that scripture teaches. And this is probably the most controversial part of what we're gonna talk about today. So let's get it out of the way first. I believe that all those other religions, they worship demons. Demons are, are fallen angels, spiritual beings who were created by God, who rebelled against God. We read about this in scripture. Satan decides that he doesn't want to serve God anymore. He wants to be served as God. He wants to exalt himself, Satan, who is a created being, who is spiritually powerful. And a third of the angels, fallen angels, follow after Satan instead of God. And those fallen angels are known as demons. Now, these are truly powerful spirit beings. If you ask, why do people have powerful spiritual experiences in other religions? Well, it's because there's powerful spiritual beings that are at the head of these other religions. And so when people worship Allah, I believe that there's a demon called Allah that people worship. When people sacrifice their children to Molech in the Old Testament, I believe that they sacrifice them to a demon, a powerful spiritual being named Molech. Now, it's super important to understand that these demons want to be worshiped as God, so they pretend to be God. And what the New Testament tells us is that our job as Christians is to test the spirits. Our job isn't just to accept every spiritual being that we see that has power, but to test it. And the test is this, if that spiritual being honors Jesus Christ as Lord, then it comes from God. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. And so when you see an angel visit someone in the New Testament and they bow down to worship the angel and the angel says, no, I'm an angel not worthy of worship, you should worship God, that's an angel that comes from God. And when you see a spiritual being who comes down and says, worship me as God, not Jesus Christ, as we see in every other false religion, then you can tell that that is a demon. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 32 says this explicitly in verse 17. Moses is talking and he says about Israel as they follow after these other gods that they sacrificed to demons that were not God. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 10, 20, he says that when people make sacrifices to idols, when people make sacrifices to idols, they offer them to demons and not to God. So here's what you have to understand. Although there are other spiritual powers out there, and this is why when somebody tells me they're spiritual, that's sort of scary to me. If you say you're spiritual but you're not religious, well, you're plugging into spiritual stuff that doesn't come from Jesus Christ. You're plugging into some demonic stuff. You know, I have a relative who said she talked about having angels visit her after her son's death. And these angels did not comfort her in the name of Jesus Christ. And I told her, that's, that's frightening, okay? They didn't point her to Jesus. They pointed her away from Jesus. That's demonic. And the Bible warns us that these are not gods, they're pretenders. If anyone worships a God other than the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they are not worshiping the all-powerful creator of heaven and earth the creator of all things that exist, including these demons. They are worshiping 
something that is false, something that is demonic. Scripture tells me that there is one God. Now, let's break down this second part, that God eternally exists as three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let's get the easy one out of the way. God the Father is God. Now, man, some of you have been in church for a while. You know that Christians are good at fighting about stuff. All right, almost, and that's sad, okay, but almost nobody, no Christians fight about whether God the Father is God. There's no big theological argument over this. Catholics believe it. You know, Greek Orthodox and Eastern Orthodox believe it, and Protestants believe it. God the Father is God. Jesus himself, he uses the words God and the Father interchangeably so often in the New Testament as to make it a moot point. It's clear, God the Father is God. No controversy over that one. So we're gonna just go ahead and move right on by it. The second person of the Trinity, God the Son. Now, I've been reading the book of John, and it's been really interesting. I gotta admit, it's, it's been really fascinating for me to read the Gospel of John while studying the Trinity because John's understanding of the Trinity is so clearly developed. And the book of John was written a mere you know, generation, less than a generation after the death of Christ. And his understanding of the Trinity is so clear it's really fascinating. And it starts right at the beginning. Here's what he says in John chapter one, starting in verse one. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All right, quick breakdown. Whoever this word is, we find out a couple things about him. Number one, unambiguously, he is God. And he is in the beginning, which means he is uncreated. God, the word, together at the beginning. Skip down a couple verses, and we read that all things were made through him. That's the word. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The word is also creator, all-powerful, and life-giving. So it's important for us to know who the word is. Well, John sort of wraps up this, this opening thought to his gospel in verse 14, where he says this, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The word becoming flesh is Jesus being born. And so when we look at these scriptures and replace word with Jesus, we find out that Jesus is in the beginning with God, uncreated. He creates all things. He is life-giving and he is God, according to the gospel of John. Elsewhere throughout the New Testament, we see attributes that only are ascribed to God, ascribed to Jesus. Jesus says that God's angels are his angels. He says that God's people are my people. God's kingdom is my kingdom. Jesus says that he can judge the world, and that he can forgive sins. You have to remember that Jesus, when he's crucified on a cross, it's not because he, he, he you know, turned some water into wine and overturned some people's sensibilities. It's because he claimed to be God. And the Jewish people said that was blasphemy. Jesus himself claims to be God. And beyond all of that, he proved those claims, as we talked about earlier, 
through the miracles, through the fulfillment of prophecy, and by raising from the dead. Number three, on our list here, God the Holy Spirit is God. Now, I thought Pastor Seth last, last week or two weeks ago, rather, did a great job of talking about the Holy Spirit. And for me, the greatest reminder is that the Holy Spirit is not some impersonal it. It's a he. He is a he. The Holy Spirit is our comforter, our encourager. The Holy Spirit illuminates scripture for us. The Holy Spirit brings to mind the words of Jesus Christ when we need those words. The Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin. He draws the world to God in repentance. Scripture tells us the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf before the Father with groanings that are too deep for words. When you think about the Holy Spirit, Scripture tells us that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit was an it, none of that makes sense. I mean, an it would be like a lamp, Okay, a lamp doesn't bring you comfort. A lamp doesn't bring to mind the words of Christ. You can't make a lamp mad when you sin. Okay, he's a person. The Holy Spirit is very, very personal. And I think that the the clearest, I guess, statement that the Holy Spirit is God, and there's plenty of statements about it, can be found in Acts chapter five. So Acts chapter five, I'll set up the story for you. We're early on in the Christian church. People are selling their goods. So they're selling their pieces of property, they're selling their houses, and they're taking that money and they're laying it before the church leaders and saying, use this money to help people in need. And along comes two people in this early church named Ananias and Sapphira. And they stand before the apostle Peter. And here's what we find out, starting in verse three. And then Peter said, Ananias, why did you let Satan fill your heart? You have lied to the Holy Spirit. Remember that. You've lied to the Holy Spirit and you kept some of that money for yourself. That property, that was yours to sell or not to sell as you wished. And even after selling it, that money was yours to give away. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but you were lying to God. Wait a minute, it just said that he lied to the Holy Spirit earlier, and now it's saying he lies to God. The apostle Peter, early on, literally years after Jesus' death, or less than a year, using Holy Spirit and God interchangeably. We see elsewhere in scripture, the Holy Spirit is given glory that is reserved for God alone. And so we have one God, and now we see that there's three that are God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, this is hard to understand, but it's not a new development. That's what I want you to know. This is not a new development, okay? In the Old Testament, if you read that with an understanding of the Trinity, there's some really interesting stuff. Genesis 1.26 says, let us make man in our image. In Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, God says, let us go down to confuse their language. In Isaiah chapter six, God asks the question, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? There's all throughout the Old Testament these plural statements that make sense when you understand that God is one, but God is also three. In the New Testament, we see Jesus equally using God, Father, Son, and Spirit. 
In Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 and 20, Jesus, who gives us the baptismal formula, you guys know we fill up a tank up here, we baptize believers who have made a profession of faith, and we do it using the names and the words that Jesus gave us. What he says is this, when you baptize, baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And what's interesting is that that word name, that little word there, is actually singular, not plural. It doesn't say baptize in the names of the Father, Son, and Spirit. It says baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. This idea that there is one name, but there are three. It's fascinating. The Apostle Paul, very early on, signs off his letters by saying, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Spirit be with you all. All three, equally together. You see it at Jesus' baptism. Jesus, the Son, is being baptized. God the Father is saying, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased, and the Holy Spirit is descending like a dove. All three together at one time. Now, do we, do we have anybody that likes history? I love history, man. I am a history buff. I'll turn on the History Channel. I like that stuff. Um, this basic idea, if you study the history of the Trinity, this basic formula of God is one essence in three persons, you find it first talked about clearly, definitively, 300 years after Jesus dies. 300 years. Now, I enjoyed studying about this, so I started studying the history. You know, I, I'm kind of a nerd with that stuff. I was sitting down this past week talking to a friend in my office, and I've been reading these historical fiction books about like medieval Europe. I'm telling you, man, I'm a nerd. It's okay. And she sat across from me as I'm describing like, man, the, how the nobles and the church and the king and the peasants and how all that worked. And her eyes are just like slowly like doing this thing. And she's such a good friend that she didn't say anything, but I knew like, all right, I got to cut this story short because she is thinking, what a weirdo. I love, I love that stuff. And so when you study about this this, this Council of Nicaea in 325, where the history of the Trinity kind of starts, um, you can actually go a little bit further back. You start to see some, some church fathers, maybe some people you've heard of, people like Ignatius, Justin Martyr, Tertullian, Augustine. These are people that from the very generations after the apostles died are leading the church. And in their writings, they, they talk pretty explicitly about Father, Son, and Spirit, all is God. So why does it take 300 years for us to get this definitive statement? I mean, I think that's a valid question. Because here's the thing, I, I want you to hear me correctly. It didn't take 300 years for people to believe in the Trinity. It drives me crazy when people talk about Christianity as if it's just some myth that developed over hundreds of years. What this Council of Nicaea did in 325 is they got together collectively, a bunch of pastors, a bunch of theologians, and they wrote down exactly what the church had always taught that Scripture said about the Trinity. It's not a new doctrine. But why does it take that long? You have to understand and remember to be a Christian was a death sentence for the first couple hundred years. I mean, Christians are being beheaded and crucified and run through with spears. 
The Romans are dressing them up in animal furs and then sicking like lions and wild animals to tear them apart. One Roman emperor would actually take Christians, and if he would find them, he would impale them on a pole and then light them on fire in his garden for his parties. That was his torches at night. We're Christians. And within that sort of climate, it's hard to do theology. I mean, you're just trying to survive. And pastors aren't writing about the one essence and the three persons of the Trinity. They're writing things like, come on, just don't give up. Be encouraged. God is with you. You have a God who loves you. Don't stop. Don't stop. Because they're surviving. And so more than anything, why does it take 300 years for this definitive statement to be made? Well, it took 300 years for you not to be killed before, you know, before when you were a Christian. Now, it was important in 325 that they define who God is because there were some serious heresies popping up. Now, I want you to grab out your notes, okay? We're gonna talk about this in Sea Life Group. There's three sort of categories of heresy that always pop up around God the Father and the nature of God. The first one you've probably heard of, it's called polytheism. So that first heresy is polytheism. The idea in, in polytheism is that there's multiple gods. Now, a good example of a, of a cult that believes this right now is Mormonism. What the Mormons teach and believe is that every human that's here was once a god on another planet, and we come to earth, and if we obey the teachings of the Mormon church, and if we live good lives, and if we trust in Jesus, then we will ascend and become gods ourselves. And so to a Mormon's thought and understanding, there's not one God, there are millions, untold millions of gods who have survived throughout generation after generation after generation. That's polytheism. And really, it's the oldest story in the book. When you think about what the serpent tempted Adam and Eve with, it was that you can be like God. And Mormonism is teaching that same thing today. It's a heresy. There are millions of people who teach that when the reality is we know that there is only one God, supreme over all, creator, maker, all-powerful, and that God is not us. The second heresy falls under this word. It's called modalism. Now, the best way that I've heard to describe modalism is simply this. They, they, modalists believe that there's one God, only one God, but they explain Father, Son, and Spirit by basically saying that God sort of puts on a mask and plays these different roles. The same God just sort of plays God the Father in the Old Testament. And then that same God comes to earth and he plays Jesus Christ for a while. And now he plays the Holy Spirit. And he plays these different roles at different times. The United Pentecostal Church in the United States and around the world, there's three million plus members of this church. They teach this. They teach that there's not three separate persons to the Trinity. There's just one God who plays these different roles. That's heresy. It's a perversion of what scripture teaches us about Father, Son, and Spirit. If this was true, then that would mean that God the Father was born of a virgin. We don't see that. We see that God the Son, Jesus Christ, is born of a virgin. It would mean that, that the Holy Spirit at Jesus' baptism descended on himself. 
And God then jumped upstairs, I guess, and spoke as God the Father about Jesus. But the reality is that we see these things happening simultaneously, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Not different roles. There are three different persons there. And that third category would be Arianism. Now, Arianism essentially denies that all three are equally God. Jehovah's Witnesses are a good example of this. They say, sure, Jesus is God, but he's not to be worshiped as God because he's less than God the Father. And there's many people that teach this heresy as well. Now, you might say, what's the big deal? Who cares? Um, I think it's a big deal because I want to worship the true God. You might say, yeah, but if we just love each other, if we just, you know, if we're all doing our very best, if we're not hurting anyone, why does it matter? Well, it matters because the things and the claims that Jesus made about himself. Jesus claims that there's one way to God and that there's one God. And so if we don't know that God and we don't know the way to God, then we're being deceived. We have to have this clear understanding of who God is. And these councils, they're great, but I want you to understand that councils are made up of people. And so they might give you this doctrine, but that doctrine, that doctrine is not equal to God's word because that doctrine is people. And you don't have to look far to see how people have let down the church in the past. You've got the Inquisition and the Crusades. I mean, you've got, you've got at one point, this, I told you I like history. At one point, do you know there were three different popes who were all claiming to be the one successor of Christ? And they all excommunicated each other from the Catholic Church at one time. I mean, one pope sold the title of pope for 1,500 pounds in gold to his godfather because he was just sick of being pope. I mean, Protestants burned people at the stake for having the wrong theology. They drowned one another. If it's relying on people, that's not enough. That's why we rely on Scripture. This is why we've been talking so much about worldview. Worldview matters. And for us, a high view of Scripture matters, a view that says Scripture is inerrant and it's perfect. So many churches and denominations have run from this view of Scripture and it's caused chaos in our culture and in our world and in our churches. And what they've done is they've said, These, this is my culture these are my cultural sensibilities. These are, these are my best judgments. And based on those things, I will judge whether or not scripture is correct. It's like the drunk person judging whether or not he's the, he's the best judge of whether he should drive home. Okay, that's the designated driver does that. And for me, as a person who has a fallen nature and is filled and riddled with sin, I need to understand that I can't trust my judgment on right or wrong. I am the kid that when I, was in, when I was a little kid, I took a cantaloupe out of my mom and dad's refrigerator and I played soccer with it in the basement. And then I broke it open after a particularly good kick and I stuck it in the little tykes refrigerator in the basement. And I realized that I make bad judgments as my mom is spanking me because of the maggots that are crawling around in my basement and the smell that is like overwhelming our house about two and a half weeks later. I make bad decisions, and so I need to use Scripture. Scripture needs to be the thing by which I judge my culture. Scripture needs to be the thing by which I judge whether something is right or wrong. And here's the thing. 
Scripture tells me that God exists as three persons and that God is one. And if you ask me to explain that, ah, it's like asking me to explain the ocean in all of its depth and size and beauty. Man, think back to that first time where you stood before an ocean and just saw the power and the size of it. You can't see the end of it. And there's the roar and the sound and the life and the depth. And even today, going to an ocean, it causes me great joy. Like I, I'm like a little kid. I want to explore it. I think when we, we think about God, a lot of people have, have tried to come up with these illustrations to explain the Trinity. People talk about an egg. One egg, but it has a shell, a yolk, and an egg white. So three parts, one egg. Or people talk about water. It's water, but it can be a liquid, a solid, or a gas. These are, in every other example that people come up with, for various reasons, fall woefully short of what Scripture tells us about God. You know, here's the thing. If I'm absolutely faithful to Scripture as my guide, I can only come to one conclusion, that there's one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, each fully and equally God. And if I'm going to fight for a neat, simple illustration to explain that, it feels like I'm taking something that's huge and beautiful and wonderful and uncontrollable, and I'm trying to like shrink it down. Does that make sense? It's like I'm standing before this powerful, beautiful ocean, and then I turn back and I start worshiping the mud puddle in the parking lot because I can understand it. Maybe my understanding of God should be limited. He's God and I'm not. But here's what I know. I can trust what scripture says. I can trust what God says because he has proved it time and time and time again. I can't understand the Trinity completely. And I'm not gonna try to give you some simple illustration. I'm just gonna try to tell you what scripture says. It says that we can live in the spirit. We can pray in the spirit. We can be comforted and encouraged by God, the Holy Spirit, and he will intercede before us. We can rejoice in the sacrifice of the son. We can look to his example in his life and be encouraged to love and serve in the way that Jesus did because the son loved us first and he is deserving of worship because the son is God. And my heavenly father, I marvel at my heavenly father. I worship my heavenly father because he gives good gifts, because he judges righteously, because he's God and I'm not. And more than anything, when I study the Trinity, when I study the nature of God, when I try to comprehend who God is, it takes me back to two things. Number one, that I have to rely on what scripture says even when I can't comprehend it. And number two, Man, is God worthy of worship. Thanks for listening to this message from Covenant Church. For more information on our ministries or to hear more messages just like this, visit us at covenantchurch.us.